0: Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. This uh, section kind of culminates in a couple of questions at the end. So we we'll be anticipating that as we read through it. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had gathered with the laborers for, agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. And so when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those who came, excuse me, when those came who were hired, About the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have only worked one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. Excuse me. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. And here's those questions. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. Amen. And 1 Samuel 2, last week we did 1 Samuel 1, this week, 1 Samuel 2, we will read uh, the whole chapter. And you remember last week, uh, if you were here, if not, I'll give you a little review. Hannah, uh, who is Samuel's mother, who this book is named after, was praying not just for a child, but for a male child that she would immediately give the entirety of his life, to the Lord. So the, the record of chapter 1 was, was her, her initial uh, crying out to God and Samuel being born and then dedicated to the Lord. So this is her response of praise at the beginning of chapter 2. And another family begins to appear on the scene, Eli's family. Eli, who was the priest that spoke to Hannah, in chapter one, so let's read First Samuel chapter two. It says, and Hannah prayed and said, "My heart rejoices in the Lord; my horn, that is my strength, is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord; for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God." Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven. And she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap. To set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength, no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven, he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah, that's Hannah's husband, went to his house at Ramah, but the child... Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now, the sons of Eli were corrupt, or they were sons of Belial. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. If the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first. Then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For men abhorred, despised, hated the offering of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah his wife, and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord, talking about the boy Samuel, and they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now, Eli was very old and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord... Who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why then do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place? And you honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Therefore the Lord God of Israel says... I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now, the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, the strength, so that there will not be an old man in your house and you will see an enemy in my dwelling place despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. And one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, Please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. Amen. It's one of those passages that you feel in your gut when you read it. It's almost like you need to take a breath to gather yourself. You see that God, the Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit does as he wishes. All things belong to him, especially his people. The church is accented in Scripture as belonging to Him in a way that other things and people and places do not. This is not to diminish how all things are His. Children, God owns all things, but He loves the church the most. And He does this to emphasize how the church is His. Matthew 20, verse 15, those questions that I pointed out to you. Put this most powerfully, the fact that God can do what he wishes. He asked these questions because the the person in the parable standing in this place is God. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Is your eye evil because I am good? Notice he doesn't say, is your eye evil because I am me? It is not only lawful for God to do as he does, but it is good. It is good. All that God does is good, even what he does to Eli's household. Let that sink in and remember it as we work through this text of 1 Samuel 2. Now, God is not just good because he says he's good. He is good because he is good. Maybe you need a new definition of what good is this morning. Reading the first two chapters of Samuel together, I gave you a summary, but if you were to read them in one sitting, it kind of presents you with a comparison of two families, Elkanah and Hannah and Samuel on one side, and then Eli, his wife isn't mentioned, but obviously he had one, because his two sons are mentioned, Hophni and Phinehas. Chapter one shows what we might call the heart that you are to have towards giving birth, How Hannah so desired to have a son. Chapter 2 focuses primarily on the consequences of poor nurture of children. There is a comparison, but the focus on chapter 2 is mostly on Eli and his sons. While the focus on chapter 1 is Elkanah, Hannah, and their son. Again, chapter 1 emphasizes the heart, the internal Aspect of parenting. Chapter 2 might emphasize the actions of parenting. As we read through the prayer of Hannah, maybe some of these lines jumped off the page to you. Maybe you were listening, maybe you were following along. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Verse 5. The hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven. It's almost like the spirit is leading her to reflect upon what is going on in the text. The comparison continues. Samuel's name, or name tag you might say, was minister to the Lord. Verse 11, verse 18, verse 21, verse 26. Hophni and Phineas's name, the New King James uh, doesn't give it Literally, if you want to call it that, um, it says they were corrupt, uh, but it's actually a few words in Hebrew and it's sons of Belial. Belial is the chief demon, it's the devil. The sons of a priest of God most high were sons of the devil. Verse 12, verse 17 and verse 22 through 25 give you that case. One of the things in this passage, uh, you could describe it any number of ways. I prepared a Bible study on this a few weeks ago and shared it with uh, the men at our men's breakfast and kind of fleshed it out a little here for a sermon. But I just want to share with you from chapter two, some lines that ought to make you tremble. Lines that ought to make you tremble. The first one comes in verse twenty five. In verse 25 of 1 Samuel 2, we are told that they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Now, God does not lie. You compare every translation you can find, and it says basically that. There's no softening of it. The Lord willed to slay them because of their wickedness. This shows the danger of a hardened heart. We're told they did not listen to their father. But we're told that they did not listen because the Lord willed to kill them. Doesn't this sound like another scenario? Not too far to the left in your Bible. In Exodus, where the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not listen. It's the same idea there. If you were to flip over to Hebrews chapter 6 and look at verses 4 through 6, you would get a similar, if you want to call it a New Testament parallel, where sometimes the Lord says enough is enough. He simply does. The the language that Paul uses in Hebrews 6, he says, it is impossible for those who have blasphemed the Lord in this way to be restored. We see in this Text that the the sin of Eli's sons that that made them sons of the devil was twofold. They despised the offering of the Lord, they mishandled it. And we don't have to go into all the details of what was really going on with the meat there because the Lord gives the summary in verse 17. They led the people to hate giving an offering. And then later on in the text, we learn that Samuel was benefiting from this as well. They were mishandling the offering of the Lord, but that's not all. They were also spending their time with some women that they should not have been, right? They were spending time with these temple prostitutes. This was a common thing back then. And the reason this should make you tremble, besides the fact that it says the Lord desired to kill them, Keep that in your pocket for your understanding of Christianity. But the reason it should make you tremble even more is because it seems to be that the Bible teaches that there's a point at which it's too late sometimes. It's frightening. The Lord hardens hearts, He doesn't tell us when, He doesn't tell us who. It's the flip side of what Spurgeon would say about not knowing who the elect are. They don't God doesn't mark them with an E, so they walk through public and you know who you need to evangelize. But on the flip side, he doesn't tell us who the elect aren't. He doesn't tell us when this line is crossed. We just know or have an indication in scripture that at some point for some people it is too late. Because the Lord desires to kill at times. So that's the first line that should make you tremble. The second line that should make you tremble is the Lord's explanation of what Eli did. And this came in verse 29. He said, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering of which I've commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons More than me. This is the Lord's diagnosis of what happened. The sons of Eli were honored more than the Lord of Eli. And he was a priest. He was serving in the Lord's temple. He was doing the Lord's work in the most profound and intense way. And yet, this is true of him. How did this show itself? Well, Kind of do a little digging in chapter 2. It seems interesting to me that when Eli confronts his sons, it is only after we're given the information about the women. He doesn't confront them about the worship, not at least in the text. But he confronts them after he hears about what people are saying. As if knowing the Lord's word, which he certainly did, wasn't enough. He heard what people were saying about them. Sons, 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 my sons. We've got we've to calm this down to keep our reputation intact. Eli's warning is not directed at the Lord's worship in this passage. And verse 29 also seems to imply that it's because Eli is benefiting from it. He says, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. The offerings were supposed to be shared with those who made them. They would get a portion of the food to eat. And whatever is happening, it's hard to say specifically, Eli and his sons were being greedy. They were being greedy at the Lord's altar. So first line, to make you tremble, the Lord willed to slay them. The second was the Lord's explanation, that, they were honoring, that Eli was honoring his sons above the Lord. What about the third one? In one day, both sons would die. Verse 34. In one day, both sons would die. He says it in verse 34. This is, if you wanted to read ahead this afternoon and look at chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, you could see the record of this. How there's a battle with the Philistines and both of his sons die in the same day. But you know who else dies in the same day? Eli. He dies on the very same day. Now, there's a twist, as it were, in that text, uh, it seems to me, um, where Eli is presented with this news. There's a man of Benjamin who runs from battle. We're in chapter 4, just kind of pulling it in, getting a telescope of what happens. He learns, Eli learns, that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken and that his sons have died. This man says to Eli in chapter 4, verse 16, it says, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. Eli said, What happened, my son? Not what happened to my sons. So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. And then it happened. When the man of Benjamin made mention of the ark of God. That Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. And he had judged Israel for 40 years. Now it's not wrong that Eli is... He dies from the grief of the ark of God being taken, but what is not mentioned—the grief over his sons—it's not even hinted at in the text. It's just something that makes you ponder: had Eli's heart also gotten to a place similar to his sons? In both days, son, both of the, and one day, both of the sons had died. And then the last uh, line to make you tremble, as it were. And this is going to stretch your your understanding of the English language. Maybe there's some better reflection in Spanish that we could give. I've heard from our missionaries this morning. Um, But the conditional nature of the Lord's forever. I'm going to say that again. The conditional nature of the Lord's forever. Uh, This is a weakness of English, I think, but it it points us to the fact that we need to think in Bible, to let the Bible inform our thinking. And what do I mean? In verse 30, I don't know if you caught it as we read through it, but it it says this. It says, the Lord God of Israel says, talking to Eli, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. So God's referring to this previous declaration. You call it a promise. I said that that would happen, that that you shall walk before me forever. But now, the Lord says, Far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. What does this mean? But that we cannot spurn the grace of God and expect it to continue. Because the Lord's forever is conditional. The Lord's forever is conditional. You see, Hannah and her family are used to shame Eli and his family by their holiness. They honor the Lord and he honors them. Hannah and Samuel are used to bring about repentance and to show godliness, but Eli and his family are meant to bring about repentance by showing the damage of neglect and the damage of presumption. We'll get to that in just a moment. You even get the text or get the sense reading through chapter 2 that Samuel is beginning to replace Eli and his sons. You get the description of Eli and his sons being wicked or not handling the offering right, but Eli, but Samuel is growing in wisdom and stature before the Lord. But Samuel was ministering to the Lord even as a young man. Eli's sons, you might say, are shrinking in stature before the Lord and with men. While Samuel is growing before the Lord and men. Now, let's talk about child raising for a moment. You who have and are raising children... Likely, let me choose a different word, should feel your failures rise to the top of your conscience as a passage like this is read and expounded. You probably begin to even see how the Lord's punishment or discipline for your offenses has come. And yet, the greatness of Christ remains. He is the Savior of sinners. However, he is not the remover of consequences. Those still remain in one way or another. But it is not until you see the greatness of your sin that you will have any concept of the glory of the savior. Christ Jesus is the savior of sinners. He did not come to heal the well but the sick. So I plead with you as we begin to move in this, this transition to the end here, where we're going to get a little more prickly in the application, to fall on the mercy of God, cry out to the Father through Christ that you might be forgiven, that he would by his mercy deliver you for the glory of his name. But there's more. It's not just forgiveness. That's not the whole Gospel. That's not the only good news. That's not the only portion of the good news. There is the saving grace of repentance. This is the new life in Christ that is promised to all the redeemed. Repentance is a gift just like faith. The question is, what does repentance look like in the various phases of parenting? What does it look like? Because based on the age of your children, it looks different. Matthew Henry says something like this. He says, those who allow evil in their children. And he's talking about this passage on Eli. And do not use their authority to punish or restrain are therefore honoring their children more than God. They hold their own reputation as greater Than God's glory. They desire to honor their children rather than the Lord. Let me clear the air for a moment. No one has perfect parents, there's no such thing except for the Heavenly Father. You only end up in Christ by His mercy. Sometimes His mercy comes through godly parents, sometimes it comes without them. But the scriptural pattern, the scriptural command, and the scriptural promise remains. And you can't get away from it. If you honor the Lord, He will honor you. The condemnation of this passage, as far as parenting goes, and any other grace of God we could meditate on, the condemnation of this passage again is against a presumption. But we often think of presumption only cutting one way. I would argue it cuts two ways. It cuts towards presuming on the grace of God, the obvious one, but also presuming against it. Because you can do both. One says, certainly the Lord will be merciful. It's not up to me. After all, God is sovereign. The other says, I've done all I can do. There is no hope. Now, let me offer some suggestions. No matter the phase, let me tell you this, especially you husbands as the leaders of your home. Open confession to God and those you've sinned against is required. It just is. Maybe you could go home and start by taking your wife by the hand, falling on your knees before God Almighty and crying out together. Whether in the house or out of the house, your children are your children and your spouse is your spouse. With younger children, there is still time to do the hands-on work, right? The plants are still young. The plants can be pruned, but repentance is still necessary and required. With a bit older children, this is not the time to quit, They still see you every day. I'm talking about those who still live under your roof. You can still lead them in prayer. You have to, have to, have to be hands-on in guiding and guarding them. Use your authority to do that which is good for them. With children out of the house, as many in this room are, this is harder. They are still your children. And you probably owe them an apology as well. Now you might say, they don't care about the Lord Jesus. They haven't gone to church in 15 years. But could you imagine the impact that this, this might have? Just maybe. Even if it just makes them think that you take this Christian thing more seriously... You pursuing the Lord's requirement of you is going to please him, regardless of how they respond. You see that in the example of Eli, even adult children bear on the parents in some fashion. They were old enough to be serving in the temple. Old enough to be sleeping with temple prostitutes and God confronts him. These are your sons. Look at what you've done. You can still have an impact. Otherwise, the Lord would not have confronted Eli in this way. You can't quite require things of them the way you did when they were under your roof. But you can still be their father. You can still be their mother. Speak to them because you are more concerned for their soul more than their feelings for you. And if you are not, then you are guilty of 1 Samuel Chapter 2, verse 29. You honor your sons more than the Lord. In proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, as we do in the Lord's Supper, indeed that is what happens. It points to your death to sin in Christ, the forgiveness of sins you have in Christ, the forgiveness of all those sins that have risen to the top with a meditation like this but it also points to your resurrection in Christ and that new life that you are called to and equipped for by the Holy Spirit. Do not sit complacently and be satisfied with simply the forgiveness of sins because all you have is half of the Savior. Repentance and new life is part of Of the gospel. It's part of the promise. Live in the resurrection to life that is promised to you. It is yours, dear Christian. There are so many powerful warnings in this chapter. So many. And yet, as usual, there are promises. One of the most obvious being those who honor me, I will honor. The Lord's table, friends, is food for the soul. This food, the body and blood of Christ, is the nourishment you need for strength to honor the Lord. I charge you to ask him for it and to believe that he will give it and then act upon it. Amen. Let's pray.